I'm Nick Harvey-Doyle, a Ngunnawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. There's a word, solastalgia. It describes homesickness when you're still at home, because that home is changing in ways you can't control. This week, we're bringing you three stories about our relationship to place. Places in flux, and places that aren't what we thought they were. It's the fourth episode of Breaking the Binaries, a series about the intersections that blend, blur, or break society's binary codes. These stories were produced in collaboration with all the best mentors for the Science Gallery's new show, an immersive exhibition about breaking binaries, which is open now. First up, Megan Danzi on how learning the history of her city's natural environment revealed it wasn't so natural after all. London has the Thames, Paris the Seine, and New York the Hudson. Great cities are defined by their waterways. The rivers that run through them are central to their identity, their soul, their history. Since moving to Melbourne five years ago, the Yarra River, or Birrarung, has become an important place for me as well. Running or walking along the Yarra connects me to nature, and I thought I had come to know its trees, its water, and its wildlife pretty well. But a discussion with Melbourne Uni conservation biologist Dr Kylie Soans shattered these illusions. Kylie researches how humans have changed the Yarra River. It's a very different river now than it was, you know, 200, 300 years ago. And how since colonisation, we have straightened, dynamited and bent the river to our will. In doing so, we've made it a harder place to live for the plants and animals that depend on it for survival. Unfortunately, a lot of the changes that we made to rivers actually made them wilder in ways that were really detrimental. And so my chat with Kylie the other day left me with one big question. When it comes to our cities, is there even a difference between man-made and natural anymore? Today, I'm rugging up and walking my usual route along the Yarra River's edge. Except this time, I'm looking a bit closer. I'm searching for where the artificial ends and where the natural begins. I'm starting my journey where the Yarra bends around the only island in the river, Herring Island. It's got lots of birds and it smells strongly of sulphur thanks to the mud. So it's feeling pretty natural here. I've always thought it was really nice that there's an island and a habitat for birds amongst two major roads on either side, but just a little bit of digging shows that Herring Island isn't actually a natural formation. It was built by humans in 1928 from the silt that was being dredged up from reshaping the Yarra, reshaping efforts that force the Yarra to flow a different way. I see the island now not as a refuge, but a sort of ironic tombstone that says, here lies the dug up bones of the Yarra. I'm definitely starting to see what Kylie was talking about. What we've done with the Yarra is we've made it wider, we've made it straighter, we've made the edges really hard and and out of concrete. And essentially by trying to control the river, we've created a separation between the river and the landscape around it, which is really unnatural and, and not at all how waterways tend to function. 
I'm about three kilometres up from my original start point now and both sides of the river are now concreted. It's very straight. That's why you see lots of rowboats and you don't really see any water birds around. I can only see about two ducks a little way down the river. In fact, what makes it really nice to walk next to in this area are these high, hard concrete edges to the river. Kylie says that it's those hard edges that have made it more difficult for every other species to access and climb in and out of the river. Uh, water birds and turtles and eels and all of those animals that would have depended on the marshlands that flooded all of that ground that stayed soggy and inundated, um, all of that's gone now. You know, we, we, we cut that flooding and that, that soaking and that sponginess out of the landscape, either by concreting over the top of it or changing where the river flowed. So there are species that aren't able to use the landscape in that way anymore. And you can see this if you look closely enough. I'm standing on the Prince's Bridge, which is arguably one of the most iconic places in Melbourne, next to Flinders Street Station. And I usually stand up here after my walk before I tramp home, admiring the river and thinking about how amazing it is. When I lived in Amsterdam, I love the canals, even though they're so clearly controlled and manufactured. But standing up here now, all I can see is one big canal where there's meant to be a wild, unrestrained river. And to be honest, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit. We like to think of Australia as being more natural and wild compared to other countries, that Australia has such a sense of untamed beauty. But walking along the Yarra today has shown me that it's definitely not as wild and natural as we make it out to be. Separating the glass and metal of the city's skyscrapers from the manicured green of the Royal Botanical Gardens, the Yarra is a grey, or brown, area. It's a place that's at once central to the city's identity, a great in-between, where past and present, north and south, man-made and natural, all blend together in its murky waters. That was Megan Dancy. Next, Nick Harvey-Doyle on how Indigenous knowledge could make Australia's built environments more harmonious with the land they're built upon. Yelamundi is the Darug word for storyteller. In Aboriginal culture, the stories that elders pass down form the foundation of Indigenous knowledge systems. One of the greatest sources of this knowledge comes from country, a sacred, spiritual and deeply personal concept for Aboriginal people. When I think of what country means to me, I think of it as a really holistic concept that encompasses every part of our lifeblood, our being, our spirituality, our connection to each other and to the landscape. Someone once said country is life. It's part of a holistic worldview that connects everything, everyone and every spirit. That was Yatu with his hunt an Anaman person and specialist Aboriginal consultant from Sydney. I'm Nick Doyle and I'm also an Anaman person. Over the past year, Yatu and I have been working with designers and developers on breaking the exclusion of Indigenous knowledge and country from modern placemaking. Being on country is a sensory experience. It's not just a type of metal or a shape of a building. It's actually how you feel, how your spirit is ignited, what you hear, what you smell. And I think we've almost lost that holistic approach to being in space and being in a place. Designers and property developers can actually influence that experience in a really profound way. 
I'm down at Sydney Harbour with Wiradjuri person Janice Constable and we've been reflecting on the inherently sustainable land and water practices in Aboriginal culture. We understand that if we care for country, it will care for us and that this cultural practice is paramount for Australia's future sustainability. Future landscape is one where we've addressed climate change and that the scarring on the earth that's happening now because of climate change is ameliorated or at least regarded as something we can address. And I think connecting country is a key part of that. When working with designers and developers on using Indigenous knowledge, Yatu and I have been implementing a process known as Connecting with Country, which asks placemakers to place the health of country at the centre of construction projects. I think the built environment takes a lot from country in the same way that lots of industries do. So in a way, I almost feel like it's important that there's recognition of that and that there is respect and consideration given to what we take from country and how to do that in a more mindful way. But I also think that city shaping and the built environment is also part of our contemporary storytelling and part of our contemporary storytelling lives in country. But how can country and Indigenous ways of doing things inform modern design? I was actually very recently talking to designer Denny Francisco and she says when she creates work she doesn't actually go in with a predetermined notion, she actually just creates space for country to tell her and evolve ideas through the experience of being there. And I think that's a really beautiful Aboriginal worldview and process and way of doing something. And I think it's really important that our built environment works in harmony with country, respects country and acknowledges what it has taken. In using Indigenous knowledge and the reverence we have for country and community, we aim to not only forge deeper connections with the landscape around us, but to also create spaces that facilitate greater connection between people. Something might be designed in a way that actually strengthens someone's connection to that place, even if they've never been there before. It might be in the shape of a walkway because of the vista that they might see when they do that. It might be in the shape of a room that provides a more democratised space rather than a traditional Western hierarchical space. So there's lots of different nuances and ways of imagining what the outcomes of Connecting with Country will be. Connecting with Country aims to alter people's feelings of place by designing spaces that highlight why country is so sacred for Aboriginal people, which Janice says opens the door for deeper conversations. It heralds some kind of maturity that Australia has come to. And I think that the more people that embrace it, the less fearful people are about Aboriginal issues. And some of my non-Aboriginal friends, when I talk to them about that, they've come back to me and gone, oh yeah, yeah, I went to bloody blah and I felt different. It's like, yeah, well, you can feel it too. Like everyone can feel it. By breaking the binary of where people think ancient Indigenous knowledge belongs and bringing its relevance into modern Australia, we send a message that all lived experiences have a role in shaping our society. Through connecting with country, we are acknowledging Aboriginal culture as a continuous living thread rather than something to be memorialised. And surely there can be no greater acknowledgement of country than having it reflected in the world built around us. That was Nick Harvey Doyle. In our final story, Jershin Chang explores the contradictions of Macau. I have found a balance between being a democratic supporter and my Chinese identity, which is a lot like the Macau city. 
Jun Tan was born in Macau a year before the handover to China in 1999. Before she was 13, Tan lived with her parents in mainland China and then returned to Macau for education. She says she grew up witnessing the change in Macau's political environment under the One Country Two systems. I think the young generation of Macau people they are politically indifferent. The Macau national security law has been implemented for many years. People already get used to not discussing politicals. Like we don't even have the right to protest under the law. One country, two systems is a Chinese constitutional principle describing the governance of Hong Kong and Macau. This principle suggests that there would be only one China, but Hong Kong and Macau could retain their economic and political system for 50 years after Britain and Portugal surrendered control of the territory to Beijing in 1997 and 1999. But in recent years, many people believe that this principle is already under threat. It's lunchtime. Tan and I are sitting at a cafe next to a high school in Macau Central District, where she has studied for three years. Tan believes the coexistence of Western culture and Chinese communist ideology can be observed in the Macau primary and middle schools. In Macau, we have two different types of school: red schools and the religious schools. The educational design of the red school, of course, follows the political direction of the CCP. I was studying red school too. Unlike red schools, church schools teach in Portuguese and English. They don't have the Chinese verb in their school. After lunchtime, Tan drove me to the Macau Legislative Council, which is only a few kilometers away from her high school. The influence of the pro-democracy camp in Macau is very limited. The pro-democracy camp is a political alignment in Macau that supports increased democracy. They and their supporters embrace liberal values such as rule of law, human rights, civil liberties, and social justice. It looks like the democracy camp cannot avoid being suppressed by the Chinese government. Even though they were very low key last year, the last two democracy camp members of the legislative assembly were also disqualified. I feel very disappointed. From outside the legislative council, we can see Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau Bridge. This bridge is the longest sea crossing in the world, which opened in 2018, connect Hong Kong Macau to Pearl River Delta region of mainland China. I live in the Pearl River Delta region of China before middle school. This region is nearby Hong Kong and Macau. The Pearl River Delta region's culture has been affected by Hong Kong and Macau a lot. Tan says that as she returned to Macau to study in 2011, she had more opportunity to learn about democracy. But the more she was influenced by the liberalism and democracy, her political views became more difficult for her parents and Chinese friends to accept. When I discuss politics with my Chinese friend, I can feel that we look at democracy very different. I can obviously see that they have been infected by the Chinese social media a lot. They never realized that what they say on social media is censored and controlled by the government. In fact, I feel like my parents' views on my political stance were also influenced by social media. They recently accused me that I was poisoned by Western political text and information. I asked Tan whether she thinks the two system and democracy still exist in Macau today. I think one country, two systems is quite successful in Macau. 
at least most people in Macau are very satisfied with their current life. But it should allow more than one political party exist. The government should allow different voice. Although Tan has broken the family traditions of being a communist supporter, in my conversation with her, I found Tan likes to identify herself as a Chinese, but not a Macau citizen or Macau Chinese. It is not very usual in Macau's young generation. What Tan wants to get rid of is not her identity as a Chinese, but the inherent impression that people who come from a pro-communist background are always conservative and anti-liberalism. That was Jia Xinjiang. These stories were produced for the Science Gallery in collaboration with mentors from All the Best. A massive thank you to reporters Megan Dancy, Nick Harvey Doyle, and Jershin Zhang. Thanks also to mentors Mel Chun, Ollie Krusek, Dan Simo, and Danny Stewart. The yarn is from the Center for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week for the final episode of Breaking the Binaries. <laughs>